0: Series 5 was recorded in March 2021 over the internet. The following content may contain strong language.
1: Welcome to a special series of the Rural Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast in association with the Stuckermarkt of Berlin Theatre treffen. With me, Simon Stevens. For 65 years, the Royal Court Theatre in London has led the world in the production of new plays and the discovery and championing of new playwrights. The Market of the Theatre Treffen is an annual gathering of new writers and theatre makers. Every year since 1978, writers are chosen by Stuckermarket jurors from hundreds of applications to visit Berlin and perform, talk about and celebrate their work. With the 2019 Stuckermark, the competition was launched for the first time worldwide. In this short series of podcasts, the Royal Court Theatre and the Stuckermark collaborate for the first time. This year, as Berlin, like the rest of the world, manages the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic, the six writers whose work has been chosen will be discussing their work in this special series of five hour-long online conversations. The presence of academia in theatre-making in the United States has a status that is, I think, more pronounced or established than it seems to me to be in the UK or elsewhere in Europe. In many US cities, the theatre is housed within the universities. The artists and audience are often academics or students. In New York, that complex heart of the country's theatrical history, Columbia and NYU in particular, provide the art form with a constant pulse of new life. Theatre in the US seems born out of a synthesis between the theoretical rigor and interrogations of its universities counterpointed with the energy and drive of the marketplace as most famously typified in the theatre houses of Broadway. The theatre-making duo made up of director Talia paulette Oliveras and the writer Nia Farrell, collectively known as Tania, both typify this position and obliterate every last archetype it might suggest. They met while studying experimental and collaborative theatre-making at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. The power of their theoretical rigour and the incision of their thought as a means of critiquing power was maybe developed at NYU, but there is no arid or academic crust to the work that Tania first developed there. The visceral, playful, humane, angry, Afro-futurist theatre event, Dreams in Black Major. First staged at Tisch in 2019, it transferred to the National Black Theatre in Harlem in the same year and at the Ant Fest, the all-new talent festival at the celebrated Ars Nova Theatre. In 2020-21, it was chosen by jurors to visit the Stuckmark at the Theatre Treffen. It is a source of some regret to me to not be able to make it to Berlin to see any of the five shows chosen for the Stuka market in real life. But I can't help feeling that it is a particular shame to not be in the same room as Dreams in Black Major as it is played out there. Farrell's text is sensuous and poetic. It explodes the conventions of linear narrative to create a text that is built on ritual more than it is on a dramatic arc. It describes itself as a celebration in five movements. Reading the text on the page, the energy of that celebration alone is infectious. Infused by the magic and dignity of music and art, it combines jazz and cookery, reinvents a school curriculum with unapologetic glory, reimagines BuzzFeed questionnaires, and makes theatrical intervention to encourage the audience to engage in a consideration of their own identities and incumbent histories. It draws from a past of centuries and imagines a new future, but invites a ritual that is necessarily defined by its present tenseness asking its actors to really talk and really listen to one another, inviting its audience to really dance and the food that ends the piece to really be made and to taste, I imagine, fucking fantastic. If this is a piece born out of a nuanced and complex theoretical understanding, it is also one of the most joyous and celebratory pieces of theatre I have imagined all year. Tania, Nia... Talia, welcome to the Royal Court Playwrights Podcast, and welcome to the Stook markets. Thank
2: you so much. Thank, Thank you. you.
1: no not at all it's really really lovely to meet you both electronically and as i say i'm really sad that i'm not getting to to see the show in real life and to meet you both in real life Uh, and i can't decide yet whether i'm just going to use uh use the word Tania and invite answers from both of you or kind of like we'll just see how we get on we just see how we get on um but and so i'll uh i i will in you know, I'll, inv- I'll just ask the question and see who wants to speak first. I always ask the same question with every interview that I do because I have literally no imagination. And on occasion, it's, <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a good question. Uh, but I'm really fascinated to hear from both of you. And the question is, when was the first time that you went to the theatre? Tania! <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. I
2: think I remember mine.
1: And this is Nia, right? Yeah, I'm gonna distinguish between the two of you. It's impossible (laughs) to do this. Nia, go on, where was yours?
2: Um, I think my first theatrical excursion Hmm. was at the Pantages Theatre in Los Angeles where I saw Wicked with my mother. Um, I don't remember much other than like a really big dragon um someone (laughs) flying and it feeling like emotionally resonant this was like maybe when i was 10 or so and i saw that as like that's the power i didn't say that as a child nia you probably (laughs) thought it was cool but looking back now and like wanting to sound more um articulate i bet i was thinking like that's the transformative work i would like to make
1: It's a really beautiful description of a beautiful moment. Were you are you from LA? Were you
2: yeah, yeah, originally born in Southern California, spent like 6 years in Pennsylvania in Amish country and then found my way back to California and then moved to New York. Oh
1: man. The uh, and, and 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 Talia, what about you? Where were you, where were you where were you first at the theater?
0: yeah so i am born and raised new yorker um so my <laughs> you first... did
1: something with your fingers there which
0: <laughs> it was like a sideways peace sign which i guess is a way of uh representing my new yorkness somehow very in cool moment <laughs>
1: it communicated itself beautifully to me i got it immediately whereabouts in <laughs> new york you. are you from
0: so i grew up right outside of the bronx in right. a town called mount vernon so i was kind of moving between Westchester which is that county right outside of the city and the city itself Um, Mm. and so naturally my first memorable experience at least was Broadway Um, Mm. I remember seeing Phantom of the Opera at six years old I actually really (laughs) wanted to be an opera singer it was my first (laughs) my first dream so my inspired by the
1: Phantom Naturally,
0: of course, (laughs) but no, my grandmother used to listen to a lot of Pavarotti when I was growing up, and there's something about his voice that made me want to do opera, and so they took me to see Phantom of the Opera on Broadway, and I had the perfect seat in the middle where the chandelier fell right over my head, and I was like, forget about opera, what is this? (laughs) This is fun, so... Fell in love with theater at that moment and never gave it up. Basically,
1: <laughs> that's really and 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 you both have family members who encouraged this interest and took you to the theater. Yeah, Definitely. Near who was yeah. who was in your family was was taking you.
2: My mom actually is like a singer. And so like, I got a lot of my performance self from her. And then my dad is like the organizer. So he sent me to like all the camps and like the community theater (laughs) programs. Um, So the combination of them both, I felt extremely supportive. Um, And my brother as well, you know, he was holding the camera. So give him a little shout out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Your brother as well. Uh, What's your brother called?
2: (laughs) My brother's name is Alec. Um, Alec. Yeah, he's a lawyer. Hey, congratulations bro. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> you got a proper job <laughs> what, what, what about you Talia Who, Did you have a supportive family you were encouraging with Yeah
0: this? for me It was basically entirely my grandmother. She was the one who would watch movies and see Broadway shows and listen to opera. And she encouraged me to do the same. And she put me in my first after-school arts program, um, fought for me to join a year younger than was allowed. So I joined when I was seven, I believe. And then I just stayed there throughout the whole rest of my educational career, basically.
1: Gosh, that is in all of these conversations tell you you might be the youngest starter with <laughs> like 7 years old is a pretty early start in in a life in the on for the on the stage that's really great was it was it yeah. something that stayed with you throughout your teenage years this kind of commitment or fascination with theater
0: Yeah, definitely. So I started with that arts program and just really, really fell in love with it. Um, And then when I got to high school, I actually went to a high school that had a specialized arts program. So then I did more of a little bit of an intensive acting training program. And then I was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to college for this. This is all I want to do in my life. And so it felt a little easy, if that makes sense. Like I knew what my path was going to be.
1: Yeah. If you've got that clarity of decision, that's, you know, it's kind of, it doesn't even become a decision. It's just like, well, that's what I'm going to do. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And was it the same for you?
2: I was caught between two worlds. Um, mm. I, I played volleyball for a little bit and I was convinced oh, I was going to play D1 at Penn State. That did not happen as I <laughs> played left bench for most of my volleyball career. Oh. In um, so it was like my senior year where it's like, I really committed to the drama program. I went to like a summer arts program. Um, and that really made me feel like, okay, I'm confident. Like I'm making a choice versus like my parents putting me in programs. Yeah. Um, and so like that choice to audition for schools and just to see what happened like that was kind of
0: the choice that was made
1: and what kind of stuff can I ask you Nia what kind of stuff were you like as a teenager what was your imaginative world what were you watching what were you reading what 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 theater were you going to of your own volition or films were you watching
2: yeah I would say when I was younger, it was like a lot of the commercial stuff that was just like presented to me and like readily available. I think my imaginative life was like, I would be inventing games in my closet and like building worlds outside and Legos like that whole part of like the imaginative brain building spaces. Um, I think when I really came into like my Afrofuturist imaginative self, that was um, in college when Talia and I were part of the MLK Scholars Program at NYU, yeah. where it's like in one year, we went to the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. I took this African-American drama class. And then yeah. I also went to the National Black Theater for the first time. And it was like this perfect storm of blackness where it's like, oh, the imagination can be used to build futures that I can exist in and invite others in, in like a theatrical way as well well
1: that's really beautiful and so and just in terms i really want to talk about afrofuturism because i i it's a new term to me because I, you know, as I said, I'm ignorant about pretty much everything, but uh, I was really thrilling to kind of, to to read about it and know that my kind of like uh, love of Funkadelic and Sun Ra might've led me there without knowing that I was going there. But I'm also, uh, before we talk about that, I'm interested in what New York meant to you as as a Californian. Was it like a holy grail of a place? Was it somewhere that you dreamed of going to or, yeah, it's a rival, or, or yeah. What was New York for you when you were growing up? You can answer the question rather than me giving you a million options. <laughs> <laughs>
2: When I auditioned for schools that were outside of New York, they're like, New New York's going to be there like your entire life, like go somewhere else and like develop your training and then you'll get there. And I got to a point where it's like, well, why wait to get there? You know, if I can become acclimated to the city and the energy while in school, isn't that like a benefit to be like a part of the community that I'm going to be creating theater with. Um, And so I definitely saw New York as like the Holy grail for theater. California, love its theatricalness. It's not quite as prevalent as like Hollywood is, where it's like you identify LA and Hollywood. Um, right. So knowing that like theater and like live performance is what I was drawn to, New York felt like, okay, this is the center. This is where like ideas perhaps like start and are disseminated or like ideas from like regional theaters come in and it reaches like a larger audience. Yeah.
1: And uh, Talia, for you, was it ever a question of leaving the city or was, or do you, do you feel a New Yorker in your metabolism?
0: It's a little bit of both. I feel New York is always going to be my, my kind of lamppost. Like it's always where I'm going to return. I think, Um, I think it's like very intrinsic. who i am in terms of the pacing and the just the way of life the 24 7-ness in particular whenever i leave new york Mm. i'm always when it hits like 2 a.m or 5 a.m i'm like where is everyone so (laughs) (laughs) i'll always return to new york but since going to college i've actually that's when i started getting interested in starting to leave and now i'm really interested in learning about theater elsewhere just because growing up too i i do think new yorkers have a little bit of a sense of stay here um and when we're when you learn theater in particular in new york there's a lot of emphasis on new york being at the center of theater so a lot of teachers growing up were like why would you go anywhere else so i think i've been learning that and it's been really exciting working now with especially across borders and seeing what art looks like across borders and i'm intrigued by that i've never been to california so i don't even know what that world is like so i'd love to to dabble and put my toes elsewhere. Yeah.
1: Where did you, do you guys remember when you first met?
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we do.
1: I feel like I want to mute Antalia and then get near to tell me the story and then reverse the process. <laughs> oh right. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Where, where <laughs> did you first meet then?
2: The fateful day of weekend <laughs> on the square at New York <laughs> University. It was like a pre-college thing. Like if you were an admitted student, you could like right. come to NYU and like check out the vibe. Um, and we were put in the same group. Is
0: that what it was? Talia? Yeah. So specifically for this, the students who got offered this scholarship program, um, they put us together basically so we could all learn what the program is and get a little bit more s- specific i guess version of nyu so we were put together by nyu as roommates for this weekend Wow! (laughs) at what 17 years old i guess yeah
1: wow that's always um that's speaking from a british perspective that's always been an element of uh american or u.s kind of university college stories which always terrifies me is the roommate, which is this person (laughs) who they just kind of like say, you now live in the same room as this person. And then we don't have that in UK universities. And the idea always distressed me, but clearly it's fucking brilliant. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't
2: work out well 99% (laughs) of the time based on like my friend. No, I'm not even gonna say, (laughs) I'm about to call out. Wow. They won't be listening. They
1: won't be listening. (laughs) They won't know.
2: Um, But this roommate experience worked out really well. Cause then when we went, we like studied abroad in Paris together. Um, Mm. We were roommates then. And so it's like, we kind of just ended up in the same circles over and over again. And we just decided to listen to the universe when it gave us signs. We're like, okay, I guess we'll do something together.
0: It did take us a while though, because we met when we were 17. And then we were roommates that same freshman year. So we were still 17, 18. And then we kind of went our own ways for the first two years, I would say, of college. Um, And it wasn't until really junior, senior year that we both kind of came back together and we were like, enough is enough. Like we keep seeing each other over and over and over again. <laughs> right. We might as well just have a relationship and talk about <laughs> art and maybe even make art together.
2: I know that was so cute. It's like the, the first email reaching out maybe after a year. it's like, hi Talia. I don't know if you remember me, I'm Nia. I'd love to like get coffee and talk about your work. And then we just haven't stopped FaceTiming and talking really since.
1: brilliant. The uh, and I'm interested because you're uh, from what I've re- read about your work, not just not just in the piece, but uh, the role of thought, the role of theory, the role of thinking, as you said, near, you know, your discovery of black identity and all the theoretical politics and experiences surrounding that is so rich and deep and exciting. I'm interested in this in like, did you was this something that you both brought to one another in the way that you might just have a not realize that you had the shared interest or who taught who or what was the story of academically intellectually between the two of you?
2: I think I was more like floating ideas and then Talia came in with like the rigor because you got, you got your, your, like your thesis like you did an undergraduate yeah.
0: thesis Yeah, I I did double major in what was called social and cultural analysis. So I basically studied alongside Peter, um, gender, race, and sexuality relations uh, from a more theoretical perspective. So I think I had that knowledge and then Mia had a lot of the Afrofuturist knowledge that I actually didn't know about. So I feel like those were the kind of two sides that came together, but we're both very academic at
1: heart. right? The, and um, ha, uh, okay, I want to know about how academia has de- uh, how how you use that in your work because the piece doesn't read as I said in the introduction. There's nothing arid about this. It's such a live, living thing. It's like thought is a cool place to be <laughs> to be in, or a living place to be in. Thought is something that's alive. Um, uh, but before we talk about that process and accommodating theory into practice, tell me about Afrofuturism.
2: Yeah, that is a huge thing. Right. Recommend anyone who's listening to just start the Google dive yeah. um, or whatever search platform, start that dive. Um, our particular like flavor or brand of Afrofuturism is mundane Afrofuturism, mm-hmm. which was coined by Martine Sims, who generated this manifesto, talking about Afrofuturism as something that's very tangible and exists on this earth. Um, what I like to say is like Black Panther is a great example of Afrofuturism mm-hmm. because it's talking about an Africa in which slavery didn't happen and there's like vibranium and allows us to tap into these powers from like my perspective like so awesome I also can't wait for vibranium to exist and also slavery did happen so like what are we going to do about it and what exists on this earth currently that we can like generate the futures that we want to have in which we are as liberated as the people of Wakanda yeah. Um, so that's where that's kind of like the entry point for mundane Afrofuturism, kind of like bringing it down to the earth, our bodies, um, the ritual practices that we can do on our own and in community.
1: It's a really clear definition that the, the piece which you've talked about, the HuffPost sum, uh, summary, which is called uh, it's called something like what the fuck is Afrofuturism? Probably mm-hmm. not what the fuck in HuffPost. Uh, but that has a real clarity and lucidity to it. Mundane always seems a slightly kind of insulting adjective for something that makes something that's fun and, and 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 kind of imaginative and born out of science fiction practical and actual and a a, a living process of, of thought. But um I, the, the way it informs your piece I think is really tangible. The when did you know you were gonna make work together rather than just hang out and talk about theory.
0: It was actually dreams in black major. Um, Mia basically Well, I don't know if you wanna talk about the origin story of Dreams and Black Major, Nia. You take this.
2: Um, So Dreams and Black Major started as um, a self-scripting piece, which is kind of like a solo performance class that I took at NYU. Okay. And there were two other Black students in the class and my like overall intention was to make pieces that were for and about them. And so that meant like only talking to them, only making sure that they could hear if there was something visual, those two people were the only people who could see it. Mm. Um, And so that is kind of like each of those little like solo performances were brought together to make dreams in black major. Um, And then I came to Talia and being like, well, one, you have like, you have knowledge around like the theory of what this is and like the the history of like what black theater is and what are we adding to in terms of like the conversation or like who are we in conversation with? And then also Talia, your ability to actualize dreams on stage is unlike any other director that I've worked with. Uh, um, I, yeah, like I come to you, I use this example every time. I come to you saying that I want a tree in the center of the stage. And like, how are we gonna do that? How are we gonna build a tree? in the center of the stage, you're like, I understand the essence of what you want, and we're going to make it happen. And it does. Like, Talia is a dream actualizer.
1: It's a really, what a beautiful job title. Dream I know.
0: Actualizer. I'll put that on my resume moving forward. <laughs> I, I,
1: I, think, I think ideologically and politically, I really get this impulse to make work only for the other Black artists in this do you say it was a self-scripting class
2: yeah so there were like two other drama students and really making it for them was about saying like how often do we walk into spaces in the united states in particular and like space is built for us and we feel like our wholeness is accepted and is celebrated
1: it might be united states in particular (laughs) i don't think it's united states exclusively though i'm sure there are Mm. you know black people listening to this throughout europe I imagine there are black people listening to this throughout Europe. Noosh will probably tell me the figures and said there's actually seven people listening to this conversation. <laughs> but but your, your experience really resonates with my understanding of going to the theatre in the UK for sure. And in Germany, I think. that's I, I love the energy and clarity with which you're combating that. So, um, so Talia, Nia brought you these scenes or mm-hmm. these, uh, these pieces. Uh, what was your reaction reading them?
0: Well, immediately, I mean, I was—I fell in love with them just because the, like you said earlier, the joy is infectious. It's truly, it like resonates off the page and it I felt like I wanted to jump into the world immediately. Um, so I was super excited to just play with the piece. Um, and I think something that really excited me as well was there was this challenge of the piece of having it be for Black people, but also not letting non-Black people off the hook, if you will. So I think there's a really active um, engagement that the piece asks non-Black people to have. And so I felt like a lot of my job when I first got the script was really thinking about that and thinking about the different audience experiences that we're curating um, while also still making it fundamentally a ritual for black people.
1: Yeah. Were these present in the text before you read it or these things that you developed together? How, how complete was the text when you first read it?
0: The text was very different from where it is now. It was much smaller. Um, I would say it was primarily monologue based. When we first started. Um, so, I would say that when I joined, the first step was figuring out what the world was, what the world was, and um, the rhythm of the piece, and a lot of those textural things. And then that's when theory started coming in, and slowly we started expanding the piece. Um, and it was definitely a collaborative effort as well with the actors. I think. All of our work, all of our processes, we le- really like to give agency to anyone who's touching it to really mm. let us know what they see, what they're missing, um, what they want more of, and really just bring themselves to it. So the piece naturally also evolved a lot as we had more actors touch the piece as well.
1: It's really interesting, in several of the conversations that I've been having with artists from the Stuckermark, uh, Stuckermark this year, uh, that that embracing of collaboration the acknowledging of the authorial role of everybody involved, designers and actors alike, not just writers or directors, is really infectious. And it's interesting that it seems to be something present in the thinking of theatre makers in London, in Montreal, in New York, all over the place. This is like feels like a thing that's sharing you. How important is that to you, that your actors are artists too, that your designers are artists too? Nia, you're nodding with real energy.
2: Yeah, Uh, I resonate with that heavily because I, um, the reason why I became more of like a creator, not solely just an actor is because I wanted to have more agency in developing pieces and not just be like a body on stage to execute a vision. Um, And so like really inviting our collaborators, whether they be like actors, designers to contribute themselves, especially in this piece where it's like, we know it's about dreams. And like, we don't want it to be the dreams of like a single person. We want it to like reach a diaspora. And so inviting everyone to contribute themselves to the process and to the work um, makes the piece all that more accessible.
1: So what did you do with the actors? Did you did you ask them to create things themselves? What was that process? <laughs>
0: yes, I love devising personally within any process. So we did a lot of, I think the very first rehearsal, I like brought in a poem and it was a lot of talking and a lot of free thinking and free writing. Um, and then a lot of the process was that. We did a lot of um, child work kind of of having the actors just dream and play and build um. A lot of movement work, both Nia and myself, as kind of Nia mentioned, we're multi-hyphenate. So we both have performance backgrounds. So Nia kind of does a little bit more um, movement that's dance-like and choreographic. And my movement is a little bit more ritualistic and yoga-based. So we would bring those together as well in the room and let that kind of unlock different things for the actors. Um, and sometimes they would even come up with ideas of like, let's try this exercise. And so it was a very um, playful process, I would say. It's, it's,
1: it, I'd, it's something I've always been fascinated by, you know, and I've, I've, I think for 20 odd years, I've thought of myself as being a writer. You know, I would think of myself as a playwright, but when I've worked or hung out with or spent time with people who devised, that level of playfulness uh, is so exciting to me. I really envy you, I envy you that. Do you think of yourself as a writer, Nia? Do you have the other, like the opposite of of, of my yearning to just be in a devising room?
2: I've been going through like a, a hyphenate journey whether it's like sometimes yeah. I'll say like creator because I, something about like writer, I feel like there's more of a form to it and realizing like a lot of what I um, end up writing feels like ritual based. Um, right. And so like creator, community organizer, ritual builder, dreamer, um, those all sound lofty. So like when it does come down to it, like, yes, I do write. I write things <laughs> and so that would make me a writer. Um, yeah. But yeah, getting a little artsy partsy with it, I guess I'll do it and say I'm a, I'm a dreamer.
1: I don't know I mean it's funny for me it was something I always wanted to be from when I was like kind of six years old because I'd read things that had made me feel less lonely in the world and I just wanted Mm. to do that job that did that but the more I do it the more I think that maybe you're right it's not the noun that counts it's not being a writer Uh, and being a writer has all all kinds of connotations which are romantic or hierarchical it's just Mm. about the verb not the noun Yeah, it's about writing, not being a writer.
2: Exactly. It's the act of bringing people together. Um, I love that idea, defining ourselves by, like, what we do versus, like, the noun that feels more, like, solid and in a place of stasis. Like, oh, I bring people together to actualize dreams and to build their futures.
1: How long were you uh, devising for? How long were you given... was, Was this given by the school? Was this at the school you were doing this work?
2: I think... My first like devised piece was for um, young Jean Lee play my sophomore year. And she invited us to be like performers and writers in this process. And so that mm. was the first time where it's like, oh, okay. I can like offer ideas and execute them. Um, and like from that moment on, I kind of like found my way or um, found myself like drawn toward processes that were more like devised based. And a lot of them yeah. were rooms that like Talia was involved in with her studio. Wow.
1: And, and the first, those first drafts or first iterations of, 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 of Dreaming Black Major, how long were you able to work with your collaborators on the development of that?
0: Not long. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, not long at all. I mean, we don't get a lot of time ever, I feel like, when we're making theatre, but um, The first, at least when I first stepped in, when we first started really expanding the piece, what we did, like, a staged reading in, like, a week or two. Yeah. the very first time. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. We're like, let's all get
2: in a room for, like, a few hours a day, and then at the end of the week, we'll, like, show it to people. Like, we're always prepping for, like, a one night only. I feel like Dreams in Black Major has been done, like, three times as a one night only. So, like, the rehearsal (laughs) process is, like, you have two weeks. Is that enough time? We're like, okay.
1: (laughs) We'll take it. Exactly. Was that a Tish? Or is it, am I pronouncing that right, Tish? Yes. Yeah. Was it that at Tish? The original. The original one night only. Was it Tish? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so it was through Tish, and then it was performed at National Black Theater because there was something like really important about like bringing this piece to a black space. Like if yeah. it's. First iteration: What is it to walk into a black-owned space in Harlem and have that just be like the given circumstances, versus walking into an institution that's predominantly white and having to like deconstruct that? If we yeah. could already walk into a space in which we belonged, like we we're yeah. already going to be like on our way. Um, and so that was like the first two-week process that we had.
1: <laughs> can you can you tell me? Can you tell me about National Black Theater? I don't. I've never been there. And I don't. I don't know about it because I'm, as I said, massively ignorant.
2: Oh, no, not at all. Um, National Black Theater is on the corner of 125th Street and Fifth Avenue in Harlem, New York. It was founded by Dr. Barbara Ann Teer, who is this incredible theater maker, performer, was a dancer at some point. Um, And she built this mecca for Black artists to go on a soul journey, which I love the phrase of. There's like this tear technology of soul. And I don't know too much about like that specific part of it. There are... um, she called her actors like liberators. So they are like liberators who understand that practice who can speak more to it, but it's essentially like allowing black artists to tap into the soul of what their work is and share that with others. Um, and so we like, it's a building that like they own. It's completely black owned, black run. Her daughter, Sade Lithcott now runs the theater. Um, it's a beautiful space where like black artists can go and just to, like find themselves and to celebrate themselves.
1: Sounds really gorgeous. I love the idea of a soul journey. Yeah. <laughs> it's really great. Yeah. So how was it received when you played, when you when you, you gave it life, this piece? What were your memories of its first night? <laughs> and it's one night only. <laughs> the first Gosh. of the three. <laughs> it's so
0: funny because we talk about it often because the memory of the piece is very different from <laughs> the concrete of the piece in the sense that it was very... um hodgepodge the way we had to do it it was very uh we sourced a lot of the set itself the costume was really like uh put together last minute like it was very uh you know classic classic college students trying to figure it out (laughs) Um, (laughs) but somehow the memory of the thing is huge and really um long lasting like we still to this day have students who are younger than us who'll come to us and say that they that was one of their first um, empowering memories of seeing a theater piece while at NYU, um, which is something I hold on to because that's huge for me. Um, And then even I remember like my mother saw the piece and my mother is not Black. So my mother, spoiler for those who haven't seen or read our piece but we separate the audience and so black people sit at the front and non-black people sit in the back um and my mother is non-black so there is this really interesting experience she had that we spoke about of wanting to join us and be with her kids Mm -hmm. and be with um the black side of the piece if you will but knowing that that wasn't necessarily her place in the piece which that was something that was a huge discovery we made with that first iteration in terms of what exactly are we doing there for non-Black people, especially in non-Black people of color? What is that experience where you're not quite uh, experiencing the piece in the same way that our white audience members are, but it's also not really for you either because you're not Black. So that was a really nuanced discovery that we made and we're still interested by and um, unpacking that. But yeah, Nia, you have anything to add well memory is
2: a tricky word because like I was performing in the piece Mm -hmm. I fully believe that the answer Took over, like I have no recollection of what happened on that stage. I see photos and I recognize that that was like, that was a night that I participated in. (laughs) I have no memory of what was actually done, but it's like the collective spirit. Like, I feel like everyone has like those who saw it at National Black Theater just like imagines like these sepia tones everywhere and it feels like larger than life. And everyone's like, it's this really big communal gathering. If you look at like some of the photos that like don't don't have like the sepia tone it's like what is this stark white wall like why didn't they put anything on the walls <laughs> like what what was the set design um mm. but like that's i choose to put that like tangible memory aside and like live in like the spiritual memory
1: mm-hmm. it's really lovely looking at those uh i think that's really fascinating because looking at those production stills which are available on the internet some of the shots uh in what looks like a rehearsal room there's this kind of performances in the rehearsal room. For me, there's something really exquisite about a rehearsal room aesthetic because it demands that the experience is playing out in your imagined space, not in the actual space. It's not a beautiful room, but it's a beautiful shared imaginative space. And I I can really imagine that from looking at those photo stills. I think that's really lovely. Yeah, and
0: I think... that's something we tapped into too because i think we forget sometimes but we played a lot into the senses where we had incense going um and different things like, like pictures that the actors throughout the space kind of put um and a lot of that also helped to create this ephemeral imaginative space that you're talking about i think too
1: the yeah, uh, I, I do. I would love to talk about your mum's reaction. And what's fascinating about the piece is, of course, necessarily it draws attention to the reader and the audience of their own racial identity. And so I, you know, I I, I I'd not. Uh, I can't remember a piece in which I was singled out because I was not black. And kind of politically, ideologically, I think it's a brilliant and necessary provocation. Because of course, like. You know, you could say what I've never read a white reader do that. Well, white writers, white writer do that. White writers don't need to do that. It's innate in the process of playwriting, innate in the process of theatre, or has been for hundreds of years that they, as you say, they feel like white spaces. But I was thinking, what would I do if I went with uh, with a black mate and they? We had to swap seats. We had to move. I had to go at the back he had to go to the front or whatever. Uh, Tell me about your mom's reaction, if that's not a really (laughs) selfish question on my behalf, just because I've never come across that in a piece of theater before, that separation of the audience on that grounds.
0: It was so interesting (laughs) in the sense that, um, right off the bat, so my mother in particular, so my mom is not black, but all of her children are black. And she came to see the show Um, And she brought my younger brothers with her um, and her sister, who's also not black. Um, And for context, I'm Dominican and Puerto Rican. So we span, you know, many different races within those two cultures. Um, And it was interesting because she had she kept my younger brothers with her at the side um, throughout the show. But then it was at the final moment when we escort the black audience members to a separate space yeah. that she could not go. And she explains it to me and she was like, you know, after you all went up there, I like really battled with myself cause I was gonna go. Cause I felt like I looked around the space and I saw a lot of white people and I didn't feel like I belonged, uh-huh. but I also didn't feel like I belonged up there. So then I was in this weird in-between space where I wasn't quite sure what to do. Um, and at that time, we didn't really account or even think about the non-Black person of color experience. So that really opened yeah. a huge conversation for us because we had um, a part of the piece then and still is now. We provided what we call tangible tactics, um, which are questions or offerings or actions that we ask basically non-Black audience members to do to engage with the work further beyond the theatrical space. And at that time, we had it, but it was very focused on, I would say, the white experience. And so from my mom's experience in particular, we started really thinking, well, what is that? What It's still the same task, fundamentally, of holding space for Black people, but that interrogative work, I think, is it's a little bit of a different um, ask for non-Black people of color to do that interrogative work of what does it mean? How do I have anti-Blackness perhaps within me, but also what is my proximity or lack of proximity to whiteness and how does that impact my relationship to Blackness, to self, to, you know, the society as a whole? Um, yeah.
1: I'd, I'd, uh, I'd not come across the phrase hold space before. Uh, I, th- I don't know if it's a U.S. phrase, uh, but- I feel
2: like it's a theater school phrase. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Where it's like, we're going to hold space for the experience. We're um, not going to center ourselves. We're going to, um, what are other like
0: ways to talk about it Talia? the end? Um, I, I would say, yeah, there are kind of two two definitions of it. The first is that theater school definition of just like, let's sit in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um and then I think the way we use hold space is really like how can you decenter yourself? How can you really and truly provide your full self, engage fully with a piece knowing it's not for you or yeah. about you. Yeah. Um which is something that we as black people I think are asked to do quite often right. and we have to do the job of fitting ourselves into work or just accepting that something's not created with us in mind yeah. and so we use holding space as flipping it kind of on its head and asking non-black people to do that same thing.
1: I thought it was such a beautiful gesture when I googled the definition of it mm-hmm. uh and and uh the 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 kind of generosity of that I thought I, I found really moving actually um I'm it's interesting that talking about the experience a lot of and it's probably my fault that a lot of the conversation has been how white people have reacted but I'm fascinated by how your black audience have reacted to the experience of the show which is built so for them Has, has has it affected them in the way that has it affected your audiences in the way that you hoped it would
2: I hope so I, You know, Talia is giving a confident head nod. Yes. So I'm going to say yes. Um, It feels like a hug every time someone comes up to us and says like, hey, I saw your piece and it like changed um, my relationship to how I walk into rooms and how I can be more celebratory of myself. Mm. Um, being in that like black only space and just seeing the smiles and everyone's faces, where it's like <laughs> we see each other in this moment, and like how often do we get these spaces, and even more, how how can we create them in our own lives?
1: The people who else, haven't, like, sorry, no, I interrupt you. That's really rude. But I just because I've read it and you guys clearly made it. But people might be listening to this who haven't. Read it, or might not get to see it. The gesture at the end of the play, which you describe as, I think, Juneteenth. It's the end of the Juneteenth part. Is you take all Mm. the black audience into a room that, in the description of the script, sounds fucking great. And they get music and they get games and they get food and it just sounds immense. So that's the space, the black space that you're taking your audience into. Forgive me for interrupting you. I just wanted to Oh, no, not at all. The context
2: is important. Yeah. We take them into their own space to like enjoy a meal together, to have conversation, to listen to live music, like the dream version of what that moment could be. Um, And I think what's like really important is that people don't walk away feeling like, oh, this is the only time I'll have that. And then it's only with this piece that I can have this space. Like we want to empower them that like, remember this feeling and carry it with you and craft that for yourself in any space that you walk into. It's
1: really interesting that uh, I think at least three of the pieces chosen by the stock Market also invite the audience to hang out with the artists afterwards. <laughs> like uh, Jude Christian does the same with Nanjing, um, you know, which which seems like just in itself a gesture that undermines kind of conventional notions of the artist and the distinction between the artist and the audience. But um I, I think there's something really inspiring about that. Talia, do you, are you often in those rooms? Do you... Because you're not performing in the piece, but do you, you often when you're watching it, what's it like going into those rooms as a non-performer?
0: Yeah, it is, it changes every time, I'll say. So it was really interesting, actually, the first iteration we did, that was at National Black Theatre versus the second one we did at Ars Nova, Mm. where the first one we got to do it the way it was imagined by both of us, which is escorting Black people to this kind of like, separate, gorgeous, open, like filled with natural light space. Whereas the second iteration, we actually had to escort the non-Black people out. So we had a new task of transforming the space that previously had everyone and making it very specifically. Now this is our space just for us. Um, And it was really interesting watching as a non-performer in both scenarios where the first time we did it at a national black theater, it just felt like um, it felt like a gift. It felt like it, it was almost like when you um, when you have like a surprise party or something and you don't know where what you're going to <laughs> and then you arrive and you're like, this is way better than anything I could have ever imagined. Um, and people really just like took to the space and made it their own. Like we had people we offered a few prompts and activities and people like just expanded upon them and created more activities. And it was really, really fun. Um, And then the second time we did it, it was a little bit more grounded. It felt a little bit more like we all had to take a breath together and really just look at each other and really like take a moment to acknowledge that everyone else was gone before we could have that same freedom. Um, Mm -hmm. And it felt a little bit more ancestral in that way where it felt really like, we took that breath together. We stood in a circle, all looked at each other. And then I could feel that there was like energy behind all of us. And it felt very packed all of a sudden. like, I think there's only maybe 20 of us or so in the space, but it felt like there was 50 of us. And then people just walked around and did the same thing that happened at National Black Theater, but it took a little bit more work for us to actually get to that point with the second iteration.
1: I love the description of the presence of uh that history with you as well as that's really moving there's something really powerful about that you've been working on it in the past year for its new iteration in berlin uh what's the work you've been doing in the past year on it how how has it been reshaped in the past 12 months
2: so there (laughs) in the original script there are places for the actors to like insert their own dreams Um, but it was like Kind of sprinkled here and there in this next iteration we like expanded the number of open spaces it used to be called mad libs now we're calling them black libs um, <laughs> <laughs> and like these black libs are like insert your dream your favorite person your favorite food um and so hopefully there's more like agency and opportunity for the performers and the creators of it to just like bring themselves and to like share themselves with their audience. Because this is ultimately like going to be shared with, since it's online, like with the larger than like Berlin, but like talk to your community. This isn't about like right. reaching our friends out here in New York. Like right. talk to your people. What do they need to hear?
1: And you, yeah. sorry, Talia.
0: Yeah. And often of I was just going to add that we also got a little bit more theoretical with the piece um with everything that happened in america over this past summer with the resurgence of black lives matter as a movement Mm -hmm. we just really wanted to add a little bit more complexity to this conversation and acknowledge that it is not easy to engage in this afrofuturist work and mundane afrofuturist work in particular with as a black person there's a lot of tension and a lot of different um modes of thought within this one theory, right? So we really wanted to engage that a little bit more and have a little bit more um, communication and conversation between the characters as well and really reflect that different thought process, the different approach to future, have a little bit more of an intergenerational approach to the work as well, just to kind of expand that universe.
1: Right, because the generational shifts in Black theory and all kinds of kind of political theory are as acute, I imagine, now as, as, as they have ever been. Right. You, you know, the, your, your, your perspectives will be very different of those of your parents or even those of people 10 years older or 10 years younger than you. That must mm-hmm. be an experience you're finding every time you make the piece.
2: Definitely, yeah. we're so excited yeah. for people who are not twenty-year-olds coming out of college to have this piece because, like, in its yeah. first iteration, it was like very pleasure-oriented, where it's like right. I've been in this school for four years and I just want to have a space that's for me, so I'm gonna make yeah. it as dreamland as possible. But yeah. like, what do our elders have to say? What do kids younger than us have to say about like what they envision for the future that they're going to be living in? Um, yeah. So, just like building out like all of those entry points was really important to us.
1: Um, I've uh, read you. An interview near talking about your previous time in Berlin. Uh, oh,
0: my. Is that oh, sick? I'm sorry. That's
1: terrible. Tania to me is no, just no, one no, entity. No. So you blur into one another in a way. <laughs> we <laughs> are the same. We are the same. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That was really good that you pointed to the right side of your screen. That would have been really right. (laughs) right. That's quite a pun. So, Talid, sorry, forgive me. You've been in Berlin before, and you've you've spoken about what it was like to visit Berlin as a as a as a black theater maker.
0: Yes, I studied there while at NYU, so I was there for about five or six months in the spring of 2018, I believe. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was difficult. It was exciting. It was so much fun, but it was difficult. And especially once I got past, I want to say the three month mark, I just realized that my blackness, I had kind of been asked, maybe not directly, but I had been asked to put it aside. Um, And it got to a point where I was seeking it out a little bit more. I was like, I know that there has to be a Black community here. and There has to be a Black history here, Mm -hmm. but I'm not finding it anywhere. And I even asked, excuse me, I even asked my professors at the time for a little bit more context of what Black theater, if it exists, looks like. What does a Black community look like here? And they couldn't even provide me with those answers, which... um, unlocked a lot for me in terms of the different way that of course blackness operates in different places um whereas here in America i would say racism to call it what it is is very overt um yeah. and so here if i ask about those things i can get a pretty clear answer um uh, it's very it's a little easier even moving from state to state to kind of pick up um what blackness looks like or how it operates here in America whereas When I traveled, because I also studied away in Amsterdam um, during my NYU career, and in both places, while it operated very differently, I found that it was just very, very unspoken and very passive, my experience of racism, my experience of the culture, and it wasn't until my very last week there that I met um, a few Black artists, and it took that long. It took six months, and it took me really digging to even find that, which I think you know, I wish we could actually be going to Berlin for stick marks this year so I could see what that community looks like and speak to the, the artists who are working on our piece a little bit more. But it's been so amazing to talk to them about their experience as well. And we're we've been doing research and learning a little bit more about the Afro-German experience from our ends because you know we're academics at heart, as we said. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's been interesting to learn. It just seems like it is um, a part of the culture to not be as spoke, outspoken about it, which is interesting.
1: Mm. When I've uh, written Black characters in my plays that have been produced in Germany in the past, uh, I've often been told there are no Black actors in German mm-hmm. theatre ensembles. And so it's impossible to cast Black actors in those roles. It's, so I'm re- really fascinated to discover the exploration of your piece in Berlin and see what that does to Berlin theater. There's no more lying.
2: There's no more lying. They're right there. They're on stage. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, um, But uh, you've, you've managed to find them. You have managed to create, uh, create a black German ensemble, which is really, uh, uh, that's going to be such a beautiful provocation for German theater. The, yeah, the, we can't take of,
0: any. Yeah, no credit, credit for, for that. Well,
1: you you <laughs> take right. the credit of having initialized it. You know, generated yeah. it originally. You can accept that credit. Are you in contact with the artists who are making? Because tell us about what the show. People who watch it online, what they're going to see. What tell us about your understanding of what what form the show is going to take, or do you really have no idea? He <laughs> just gave them the script, and they're getting on with it.
0: Yeah, we're kind of practicing release because. Nia and myself tend to really have a heavy hand on our work just because we're a duo and tend to fill a lot of the roles ourselves. Mm. But this has been a really awesome exercise in releasing the script and letting people play. And I think because it is across diaspora and this is, we really want them to tap into what it means to explore Blackness within their specific community and their specific understanding of their world, their city, etc. We're trying to release even more. Um, But what we do know what we're super excited about is that there's going to be Jamaican food involved. (laughs) (laughs) We're super excited about that. We're very jealous that we can't eat it. At least I am. (laughs) So there's going to be Jamaican uh, food involved. And we were looking at the cast. We have gotten all their names and we've been looking up all of them. And we're excited about the diversity there. And some of them our students um, and some of them have been doing theater for a while, and one of them is actually an ensemble member, which is exciting to me because clearly they do exist.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Where are they? Are they yeah. at the Gorky Theater? Or do you, or yeah, they, at the yeah, Gorky. Yeah. Yeah. The Gorky Theater is, seems to be fighting a lone battle in kind of yeah. diversity yeah. and <laughs> acting in Berlin, at least. But they're not, um, presumably, you're not going to have real audiences in. In this experience which is a bit of a shame have you been rethinking it for online or 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 is that the the work of the director we have the work
2: of the uh, conversation uh, yeah uh, with um the directors trying to figure out like what exactly can we incorporate on a digital platform to help create like how can black audience members tuning in still contribute and bring themselves um so there may be like a live chat function something like that um but yeah it won't be in person fingers crossed we'll be able to Get out there soon and maybe have yeah. like an
0: in-person experience.
1: would be so mm-hmm. exciting and what's the, what's the future of Tania? Have you decided yet? Have you,
0: yeah well yeah. we're currently, we've been actually for a while, we've been in um, a writer-director lab with Soho Rep which is a theatre here in New York um, fit, so we've yeah. been, yeah I, we, we love Soho Rep, shout out to them um, and we've been developing our second piece which is called A Map to Know Where Things Are um which that's been amazing and because of the pandemic we created a little offshoot project of that called the map project which was a way for us to engage in our devising process and collaborative process without necessarily having to get in a room with like 15 people you know um and that was awesome because we were able to reach about 250-ish people. Um so now we have like a whole wealth of submissions and things to work with in developing our piece. Um Ania, what else?
1: That's really
2: exciting. I think we're just exploring more ways to bring people together, whether that be like in person, outdoors, in virtual mm-hmm. spaces. Yeah. Um we're like now two years post-grad. And so just like continuing to build upon the, the academic and the community organizing work that is Tania. Just really excited for all that's to come.
1: I Really, yeah. really hope I get to experience it and hold space for you for a while. That'd be really something.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Talia, Nia, Tania. Thank you very, very much indeed.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Really enjoyed this conversation. Yes.
1: Cool. <laughs> You've been listening to a special episode of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast in association with the Stuckermarkt 2020 at the Berlin Theatre Treffen with me, Simon Stevens. It was produced by Emily Legg and Anoushka Warden for the Royal Court Theatre. All five of the pieces talked about on this series, the five shows selected by the jurors of this year's Market, are available online at the Theatre Treffen website from the 18th of May, 2021. There's a link for the website on the show notes. The music for this series was by and given with permission from the brilliant Derek.